All right, mic check. Check. Check, mic check. All right, good morning. Check in. All right, so we are now in question 35. We have at last finally moved from question 34. Yes, praise God. <laughs> Moving. <clears throat> we have arrived at the New Testament, same covenant of grace, different testament. But, uh, of course, with the New Testament and the arrival of Christ brings some pretty significant changes. But what doesn't change is the essence or the core of the covenant. Still all of grace. I'm excited to unpack this with you, but before we do, let me open us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your Son. Uh, we thank you for your covenant of grace. We thank you for your Lord's Day today where we have the opportunity here in the Sunday School Hour to uh, begin to unpack the new covenant where we can learn more of you, our triune God, and draw closer to you. We pray that you would be with us through your Spirit in this hour. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, as per usual, I'll read the question and let's uh, read the answer together in uh, unison, please. How was the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. Excellent. So, I'll be honest with you, when I, I got to this question, I thought, you know, do I just keep this simple, do a one-class lecture, just breeze through it? Everyone's probably getting tired, talking about covenant theology at this point. And then I came to my senses. <laughs> And I thought, that's lame. Who wants that? So we're going to finish strong with a, with a 15-part lecture. No, I'm just kidding. It won't be that long. <clears throat> but I am going to shake up the order a little bit. We're still going to walk through uh, the main sections of this question. Uh, but I want to start uh, with the fact that this is the same covenant of grace. Um, the fact that we've been uh, going through this, it's been the same all along. Um, and then we're going to end with Christ. Okay, how in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see the new covenant fulfilled. It is through his blood that everything is made new. Okay? But as I said, let's look, big picture, covenant of grace. I'm going to start there. So grab your Bibles if you got them. And since we're finally in the New Testament, we get to read from the Old Testament. You silly people, you thought I was going to say New Testament. I actually want to look at uh, two prominent Old Testament texts. We're going to start in Ezekiel 37, and then we're going to look at Jeremiah 31. Um, these will help us both demonstrate uh, the perpetual supremacy of grace within the covenants as well as connect the old and new covenants. So turn with me first to Ezekiel 37. <clears throat> now, I admit some of this is a little bit of blending of question 34 and 35. Question 34 looked at prophecies. Question 35 speaks at how it's the same covenant of grace. Okay? And as we go through these, we're kind of killing two birds with one stone, but it's all covenant theology, so it's all good. <clears throat> now, 
if you want to talk um, continuity between the covenants, Ezekiel 37, right here, this is your home run. Okay, starting in verse 24, Ezekiel 37, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. There's your allusion to the Davidic covenant. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. There's your allusion to the Mosaic covenant. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. There's your allusion to the Abrahamic covenant. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Now, a couple things we need to unpack here. Okay, first of all, Ezekiel is telling us that all the preceding covenants are building up to something else. Something he calls the covenant of peace. So let's look at that first. This language of covenant of peace actually first appears in Ezekiel 24, uh, I'm sorry, 34, verse 25. <clears throat> but it's actually a reference to the new covenant when Christ will usher in an era of peace between God and man. We know this because in verse 27, Ezekiel calls it a covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant. I can only be in reference to the new covenant. And we're going to see this more clearly when we look at Jeremiah. Now, this covenant of peace is both a reversal of Israel's curse for their unfaithfulness while simultaneously being a blessing given in its place. Okay? God says in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. So there will be both literal rain from heaven as well as an abundant blessing from the Lord. The new covenant extends the renewal of life from human continuity to even the natural world. And we're to understand that these effects will coincide with the Messianic age. The first half of Isaiah 11 confirms that for us. I wish we had time to go through that one as well, but we'd be here forever if we went through every Old Testament Messianic prophecy. But here's an important question. Why does God do this? Why? Why does he do this? And that's the second thing I want us to look at. Why does God promise to inaugurate this covenant of peace? Well, remember where we're at in Ezekiel. The people have blasphemed God in some pretty big ways, right? They're in exile. <coughs> Excuse me. We've just come out of the Valley of Dry Bones, right? A story most of us know quite well, right? The valley symbolizes the spiritual reality of the people, right? Every person, for that matter. They are, they're not just a little dead, right? They're very dead. As unrepentant sinners, they're completely cut off from God. And at God's command, Ezekiel preaches over the valley of the dry bones, and they slowly start to come back to life, right? God breathes life into them. And this harkens back to Genesis 2, with God breathing life into Adam. Sin has brought such death, destruction, and Futility into every fabric of life that God must do something new. And by the way, this, this scene in the valley should make us rejoice as well, right? At, at our calling to God's word. The Lord did something to make us respond as well. But it also reminds us that it is God's responsibility to give new life and, and spur the dead heart with faith. We see this 
valley, uh, that the word of God, we see in the valley rather, that the word of God is effectual. Now, this is all wonderful, but we still don't understand the why, right? Why this work and this picture of a covenant of, of peace? Well, turn back in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Actually, I need to get there. <clears throat> I think a lot of us forget, forget this part. <clears throat> Look starting at verse 30, uh, 22. <clears throat> Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, most of us remember quite well verse 26, right? I'll remove your heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. We know that one pretty well. But the rest around it just gets kind of fuzzy most of the time, right? Well, I read that whole section to eliminate the fuzz, okay? Remember, as we're going through this, we're seeking to understand the why of the new covenant. And we're actually going to answer a couple more questions along the way. But how about we start with what verse 22 said. God says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. The fundamental reason given for God's acting on Israel's behalf is not necessarily grace and mercy. It's for his glory. It's for his holy name. It's for his reputation. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that God's action in saving his people is not indeed glorious and merciful and all those wonderful things, right? But the primary purpose is that God's holy name would be magnified as it should be, right? A name Israel has drugged through the mud with their sin. <clears throat> Look back at verse 23. 
and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Do you know that phrase, you will know that I am the Lord, it appears 90 times in this book. Think God is trying to make a point here, maybe? See, it's not just that God is great and holy. Yes, he, he is those things. But it's also imperative that God be given the recognition, the respect, the honor that his name is due. That his name not be profaned, but rather hallowed. And God says the way he's going to do that, believe it or not, is through you, Israel. He's going to change sinners like you and vindicate his holiness through the nations. Whew. Good thing all that only applies to Old Testament Israel, right? That's not us. No. <clears throat> like the nation of Israel, we, the spiritual Israel, we are no better than them in their unregenerate state, in our unregenerate state, right? We were the ones bowing down to false idols, relishing in our sin and profaning God's holy name. We were the ones who tarnished the honor and reputation of the living God. Jump down to verse 31 to get another look at the why here because it, it, it bookends this section, right? Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So, unfortunately, most of us grow up hearing these ridiculous, unbiblical Christian platitudes. All right, we get things like God loves you, has a special plan for your life, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, you just need to let him in. All these ridiculous things. When in reality, God says he redeems you for his glory and the sake of his name. And when he does, it opens your eyes to your sin in a whole new way. It opens your eyes in such a way that you loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. Man, that's some strong language. <laughs> God says be ashamed and confounded at how you have behaved. This is the picture of a new convert in the new covenant. Someone whose heart has been spiritually ripped out of their chest and reflects before the Lord at how egregious their sin is and lives a life in such a way that seeks to honor and glorify the name of God. Is that you? Because this is a good time to reflect on sin as we enter into studying the new covenant. Verse 32 says, as you look back on your life before Christ, you should be embarrassed and dumbfounded. Man, I know as I was studying this text, it was a humbling reminder for me. Remembering our sin and having this holy shame is the first step in true biblical repentance. We must cast off in this idolatrous self-love, which is at the bottom of every sin. Okay. And verse 32 just, just really puts the stamp on it, right? God says, it is not for your sake that I will act. 
as if there was any confusion. Right? <clears throat> yes, God loves us. Of course he does. We are his adopted children. Right? Yes, we will be cared for and blessed by the living God that he, he promised us. Yes, God is merciful and extends abounding grace to his children in our, our salvation. It couldn't be any other way. Right? But the primary reason God saves wretched sinners like you and me is for his glory. And that his name would be praised and honored by us, his people, throughout all the earth. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. For he is most deserving of that reverence and honor. In our salvation, we are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus comes to save all that the Father would give him. And in doing so, Christ prays that the Father would glorify the Son so that he may glorify the Father. The redemptive and salvific work of Christ is all for the glory of God. We receive grace so that God receives glory. So when you read verses 24 through 29 and you get to verse 26, right, our favorite verse about getting a new heart of flesh, that's just God telling us how he's going to glorify himself. The name that we used to profane. <laughs> and praise God for verses like 26 and 27, right? Praise God that we live in the new covenant area where, where we know Christ, where the Spirit of God resides in us, where, where we have opportunity to look back on our lives before Christ and, and detest our sin, where we can glorify the name of God and live in, in faithfulness with the help of the Spirit. Now, before we leave this section, take notice of, of verse 30. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. So this section of Ezekiel uh, has spoken readily of not just the restoration of God's people, but the land also. Right? Land has been a prominent recurring theme in, in every covenant. Um, and we see here in verse 30 how God is bringing the blessings of the covenant upon his people. But, and this is a big but, the fullness of this promise is an eschatological promise. Okay? The restoration of the people to the land is symbolic of and arguably implies the reality of the return of the people to live in the presence of God. Okay? In other words, the land is not just a piece of property in Israel. Okay? We talked about that a little bit last week with the Davidic covenant. <clears throat> this ties right back to that. The goal is not just to establish a, a plot of land somewhere in Palestine. Right? The goal is for God to dwell with his people always, both now in this life and one day fully in paradise. That was the creation design in the garden, and that is the redemptive ordinance that Christ fulfills. Okay, that wraps up Ezekiel. Flip over in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. It's backwards in your Bibles, just so you know. <coughs> mm. 
starting in verse 34, or 31, excuse me. Now we're going to spend some good time here, so if you have your Bibles, uh, get there with me. I specifically saved Jeremiah 31 for this moment in the New Covenant. It's a critical piece of text, uh, and I wanted to speak about it in conjunction with Ezekiel 36 and the, uh, the New Covenant realities that we see here. Starting in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. <clears throat> all right, so we need to first remember here that the book of Jeremiah or in the book of Jeremiah, God is bringing judgment against his people. Right? This is, this is a prophetic, exilic book. But what's happening during the, time, uh, during the time of Jeremiah? Right? The people aren't in the land. They're in exile. The northern kingdom has fallen. Right? The Babylonians wiped them out in a bad way. The southern kingdom is in duress. Right? This, the Assyrians are knocking on their door. So here it is again. We keep coming back to it. What happened to the land promise? How does Israel understand exile when God continues to make the land promise? Has God's promise failed? I mean, as far back as Genesis 12 in the Abrahamic covenant, the people have been promised the land. And the land promise is reiterated in Genesis 15, 17, the Mosaic covenant. But that's not the only promise that seems to have failed. It's the promise of having the Davidic king on the throne. Right? So it's these two big theological conundrums, crises, right? That the later prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, that they have to answer and help the people understand. They don't have land. They don't have a king. Quite the opposite. They're in exile, right? And the answer the prophets give is that a day will come when God will usher in a future blessing. And it will come in the form of a new covenant. As I was reading Robertson's book, uh, Christ in the Covenant, I came across what he called uh, his seven themes in Jeremiah 31. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these, but I, I thought that they would be helpful to at least go over these in this section of the text. Um, so we'll run through these real quick. <clears throat> Number one, he calls uh, what he says is the return of the exile to the land. This is the first thing he notes uh, as a prominent theme in, in this portion of the text. But again, this relates to the answer of the land promise. There are occasions that God will bring his people back to the land that he's been uh, promising since Abraham. And this also addresses what God uh, is doing in the exile of Israel. The exile is not that God has forgotten or even worse, broken his promise, right, uh, to give the people the land. Rather, the exile is the just punishment for Israel's sin. And what's truly magnificent is that when the New Testament picks up on this promise, 
it's not just the exiled Israelites that come back to Palestine. It enlarges on that theme of the land. And we'll talk more about that. <clears throat> the second thing he says is that there's a full restoration of blessings on the land. In fact, Ezekiel 37 picks up on this as well. The Valley of Dry Bones, as much as it is a picture of the spiritual uh, resurrection, it's also God bringing those bodies into the land. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both pick up on this. It's a full restoration of blessing. Third, he says the fulfillment of all previous covenant commitments, um, or there is a full, excuse me, a full uh, fulfillment of all previous covenant commitments of the Lord. Remember our Ezekiel 37 passage, right? We saw all three covenants come together in this covenant of peace. There will be a Davidic reign on the throne. God's people will keep his laws, right? The Mosaic covenant. And God's people will live in the land. Abrahamic covenant. For the internal renewal by the work of the Holy Spirit. So here, Roberts is just saying that there's an emphasis uh, placed on God uh, re in renewing their hearts. Uh, we read that in Ezekiel 36 with verse 27, 26 to 27, right? God taking out your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh. So the new covenant is not just about um, an outward reality and a national covenant, right? But it's also about an inward spiritual reality. Jeremiah says God will write his law on their hearts. <clears throat> Number five, in the new covenant, there will be a full forgiveness of sins. The New Testament sign uh, significance on Jesus' forgiveness of sins is rooted in these Old Testament covenant prophecies. It's Israel's sin that gets them in trouble. Um, and they're, they're guilty of some pretty significant things, right? Idolatry, breaking the Sabbath laws... Uh, slavery laws, worshiping Baal. I mean, I could go on, but the point is the prophetic charges um, is against Israel and their sin. They, they have not lived up to God's covenantal intention for them. Nevertheless, in the new covenant, there is an emphasis on the full forgiveness of sin. Verse 34 in Jeremiah 31, there says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And the New Testament picks up on this language, right? In Hebrews 8, uh, Hebrews 10, the work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is the foundation of the forgiveness of our sin. And the same language and theme is reiterated in Jeremiah 50 and throughout Ezekiel. All sins are forgiven so that the blessings can be extended to the people. Uh, number six, he talks about the reunion of Israel and Judah. Uh, this is from Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 4. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. So there's an emphasis on God um, bringing the divided people back together, both Israel and Judah. They'll both seek the Lord, and one shepherd of David, uh, David's line, will rule over them on the throne. Uh, number seven, it'll be an everlasting nature of the new covenant. Uh, put simply, it's, it's, it's a covenant of permanence. Uh, unlike the covenant that was broken, this one will be permanent and will never fail. Okay, so like I said, that was just quick. Those were Robertson, uh, what he calls the seven motifs from Jeremiah 31. I thought they were helpful. Um, now what I'd like to do is walk through Jeremiah uh, with you myself as we kind of seek to bridge the gap between the Old and the New Covenants. Um, and I have, I have six points here that, uh, from Jeremiah 31 that I'd like to go over with you. 
the prophecy before us here in Jeremiah 31 teaches us that God will remedy the long-standing problem of His people. That problem being chiefly that they are circumcised in the flesh, but few are circumcised in the heart. So let's go through the text together. And the first thing I'd like to, uh, us to notice is the present emphasis of judgment. Okay? Present judgment is emphasized here. Now, look back up in the text a bit and start at verse 27, actually. We're going to look at verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beasts. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, to destroy and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So, in verse 27, the prophet starts with blessing, but in verse 28, he moves into present judgment. Right? We see there how God is talking about breaking down, overthrowing, destroying, bringing harm. Right? And remember, this, this is not arbitrary. Right? Nor, nor should we look at, at Israel and think, well, maybe God's just being a little bit harsh here. No. God is, is executing a just judgment against their sin. Okay? But here's, here's the flip side of that coin. With the same intensity that he judged Israel for their sin is the same intensity that he will bless them. Okay? <clears throat> the same intensity that he judged Christ is the same intensity that he blesses you as the saints of the Lord. How much he hates sin is reflected on the cross, but it is also how much he loves you and will bless you. Now, if verse 29 there was a little bit confusing, let me translate that for you. The people would say to the prophets, we're, we're going through all this because our fathers messed up. Because they sinned. Okay? In other words, it's not my fault. My fathers ate sour grapes, and now my teeth are set on edge. Okay? My father sinned, now I'm being punished. In the New Covenant, there won't be any more of this blame shifting going on anymore. Okay? Look down at verse 30. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Okay? The result of the New Covenant is that we won't point fingers at other people and blame them for our sin. Okay? And that, that's exactly what Israel was doing. Then at last we get to verse 31 and the contrast to present judgment. That's the second thing I want us to notice, the contrast to present judgment. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Days are coming when things will get better. Days are coming when God will bring blessing. <coughs> Number three is the promise of a new covenant. Okay. Interestingly, verse 31 is the only place the term new covenant is used in the Old Testament. But parallel passages will use other terms. Um, it's called the covenant of salt in 2 Chronicles 13. Jeremiah 33 uh, refers to it as my covenant with David. 
Uh, so this is meant to demonstrate how the new covenant is a renewal and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Okay? If you remember, Ezekiel called it the covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant. Um, what's important to note is, is that Jeremiah also calls it an everlasting covenant. Okay? Um, he does it in 32 verse 40. So by using these terms as, as synonyms, we know for certain that this and all other this, that this and all other names are in reference to the new covenant. Okay? Like those in Ezekiel are in reference to the new covenant. The covenant of peace is the new covenant. Now this may seem like a, a pedestrian point to make, but believe me when I say it needs to be made. Okay? It's either not clear to some people or, or some will argue that the covenant of peace relates to something else altogether. Okay? Either way, it's, it's all new covenant language. Okay? And what's wonderful is that every single different new covenant name that's used in the Old Testament is, is simply revealing some great truth about it. Okay? Covenant of salt. Covenant of peace. You get the idea, right? Now, other times in Scripture, the term covenant won't appear at all, but as we've seen previously, the, the covenant themes are there, right? So again, verse 31 is the promise of the new covenant. This new covenant will provide a fresh start for Israel and Judah. Number four, the covenant will not be like the covenant that they broke. Okay, look at verse 32. <clears throat> the new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this one, this one is different, right? This covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant that they repeatedly violated. And the imagery in this text is strong. The covenant won't be like God who remained a faithful husband while Israel plays the harlot and defiles herself as an unfaithful wife. No, this time Christ comes as the bridegroom and he dresses his church in his pure vestments. Right? We are donned in all white and made pure in his righteousness. Number five here, specific blessings are spelled out in the new covenant. And here in our Jeremiah passage, we actually see four of them. Number one, I'll put the law in your hearts, verse 33. The new covenant is unlike the Mosaic covenant in its externality. Okay, There will be no more stone tablets. Instead, the law of God um, <clears throat> is written on the heart. It will be internalized. Okay? Now, although the, let me say this. Although the mode of administration looks different, the substance of the law is the same. Say that again. Okay. Although the mode of administration looks different, the substance of the law is the same. Okay. Here's another blessing. He will be God and they will be his people. Okay. Verse 33. And let me, let me pause on this one for just a minute. Um, this is that Emmanuel principle that Robertson talked about in his book. Um, you might remember we talked about that previously. But, but this idea that, that he will be their God and they will be his people, it reaches its fulfillment in the New Testament. Why? Because God has come in the flesh and dwelt amongst his people. Jesus is the great Emmanuel. And we see this specifically in two places that we need to talk about. Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them down Write them, sorry, write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is an incredibly important passage. 
Um, and we're going to talk about it a little more in detail later when we, we talk about Christ. Um, the other one comes from 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, there's two things I, I, I want to mention here. <clears throat> there's a call to holiness in these passages. Okay? And it, it harkens right back to Moses. Okay? And his direction to Israel and their separation from uncleanness. Okay? We get that in Leviticus 11. As believers, we are to, we are to separate ourselves from the things that are unclean, unholy. We're to, we're to put a spiritual stiff arm to the things that would otherwise defile us. Okay. But secondly, and, and perhaps more importantly, as it relates to the new covenant, Paul says here that God actually dwells among his people. And, and not just among them, but in them, because the temple of God has, has transformed from a building to each individual believer. Throughout redemptive history, we see the reality of how God residing with his people builds and builds, right? We start with the figure of the tabernacle. Then we move to the temple. Eventually, it's the city of God. Finally, it peaks with Christ, right? I mean, as, as, far, God, as far as God dwelling with his people goes, what could be better? God has come in the flesh. It is in Jesus that this covenant blessing finds its consummate fulfillment, but eventually, Christ descends. The God-man leaves. Has God left? Well, no. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? How could that be possible? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right? Because Christ's work, part of it is to send the Holy Spirit from the Father so that he may indwell every believer. We are the temple of the living God, and all that that implies. Right? We could go on for hours talking about the implications of that, but what I want us to recognize now is the covenantal significance of how God has always been with his people, and how that concept has not only intensified, but personalized. And in the new covenant, God most intimately dwells with his people in a way that he never has before. And that will remain true in our glorification. And we need, we need to be reminded of this daily sometimes. Whether it's at our, our greatest victory or, or on tear-stained pillows, in, in every mundane moment in between, God is with you. Here's the third blessing. They will know him from the least to the greatest. It's verse 34. The highest blessing in this covenant, in this life, is knowing God. This is the greatest blessing. It is no exaggeration to say that we should have a personal covenantal relationship with God. Now, when I say this, I don't want you to hear or, or drift into some kind of emotional pietism. Okay, when I talk about having a, a personal covenantal relationship with God. You know, this idea of all I need is me and my Bible and a, a cup of coffee and Jesus. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, no, to know the living God and be in a saving relationship with him 
is to be bound to Him in a reverent and holy life. To pray to Him, to fellowship with Him and His people, to worship Him, to enjoy His means of grace. You could have nothing and still be blessed in this life because you have the privilege of knowing God. Specifically His Son. Of being in a saving covenantal relationship with the Son of God. The last blessing that we see here is the forgiveness of sins. That's verse 34. I mean, that really is kind of the linchpin of the new covenant, right? Man has a sin problem that he can't fix by himself. But Christ comes that he may have the forgiveness of sins and be made right with God. <coughs> and here's the last point that I want to make about Jeremiah 31 is the declaration of the certainty of this promise. We see it in verses 35 to 37. Read them again. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So the purpose behind this statement, these texts, right, these verses, is to emphasize that God's covenant purposes are certain. They're as certain as the natural orders of this world. Okay? The rising and the setting of the sun, the, the, the crashing of the waves on the sea. God says, if you could measure the heavens, then... And only then would the new covenant not come to pass. Then I'll cast my people off. But of course that won't happen. God doesn't cast his people off. And the new covenant is certain. And God's promises are true. So that is Jeremiah 31. And the wonderful thing is you will see these same themes that we just learned. Again, up here in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 37, okay? There is great consistency across Scripture regarding the teaching and the prophecy of the New Covenant, okay? Now, while we're still in the Old Testament, I mean, you guys want to stop or you want to keep going? We'll stop. All right. <clears throat> we'll say that for tomorrow. All right. Or next week. All right. Does anybody have any questions at this point? Sir? One of the things that's come blaring out to me throughout all today's morning teaching, but also much else in the Bible, is the assurance of our salvation. Yeah. I mean, just like we saw at the end of Jeremiah 31, our assurance is sure because it rests on the promises of God. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excellent point. Any more questions or comments? Excellent. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> our good and gracious Father, 
we thank you that you have ushered in this new covenant of grace, that it is made sure, and that it rests upon your providence and your promises. We pray that we would be faithful stewards of your grace in this covenant. We love you, Lord, and we pray that we would live lives that are befitting of your holy and righteous name. Please, by the power of your spirit, help us do this, Lord. We pray that you would be with us this day on your Lord's day as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you that we have the opportunity to do this. Please be with our pastor as he brings your words um, faithfully. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name.